Welcome to the YA Cafe, where we share conversations about books for teachers, readers, and caffeine addicts everywhere. On today's episode, we'll be talking about Turtles All the Way Down by John Green. Grab a mug of your favorite beverage, friends, and let's talk books. Find even more book reviews, teaching ideas, and secondary ELA resources at teachnouvelle.com. Welcome, y'all. As always, our first segment will be spoiler-free, and so you can stick around even if you haven't read the book yet. Um, So let's start by introducing ourselves. My name is Danielle, and I am an 8th and ninth grade English language arts teacher, and I also blog at teachnouvelle.com. My name is Amanda Thrasher. I just read a lot of books, and uh, we have a guest today. Hi, everybody. My name is Erin, and I am a children's librarian in Indiana. And Erin, we are so excited to have you to talk about Turtles All the Way Down because John Green is, of course, an Indiana author and also because you're awesome. Well, thank you. Yeah, I'm really excited to be here. In Turtles All the Way Down by John Green, Aza is a 16-year-old girl who gets wrapped up in this mystery of a missing billionaire. She and her best friend, Daisy, want to find him and claim the $100,000 reward. It turns out that Aza knows the billionaire's son, Davis, and even though they haven't seen each other in a while, they reconnect pretty easily. But even as Aza's trying to solve a mystery with her bestie and even get close to a boy, she struggles against the tightening spiral of her own thoughts. Okay, Erin, start us off. What did you think? I really enjoyed the book as I was reading it, but that was partially because I like John Green's writing, his writing style. I know a lot of people kind of fall on the line of, oh, he's too philosophical. But I really like it. I like his bigger ideas and the way he words things. And I loved it while I was reading it. Right now, it's been, I think, two weeks since I've read it. A lot of the story has been falling out of my mind. And that's partially because I'm a librarian. I read a lot of books. I read a book and then I move on. It's probably not going to be something that I read over and over again, but I still enjoy it. One of the things we first talked about, Aaron, when we talked about this book was the difference between this book and some of his others, like The Fault in Our Stars, which was a very different book from this one and also a very different book from his first big hit, which was Looking for Alaska. And then a lesser known one that I adore, which is An Abundance of Catherines. Where do you come down? Which was your favorite book before this one? My first favorite book of John Green was actually Paper Towns. I remember you, Danielle, were actually the one who introduced me to him with Abundance of Catherines. And I read that book and I thought, this is fine. (laughs) (laughs) Same with um, Looking for Alaska. I was kind of like, this is fine. Um, With his earlier stuff, he has a tendency to be slightly nerdy, but not too nerdy, male protagonist with his buddies go on an adventure to chase after Manic Pixie Dream Girl. And I just didn't Mm. like that plot very much. So Paper Towns still has that plot, but I enjoyed it a little bit more. But Fault in Our Stars was a deviation from that plot, possibly because he has a female protagonist for the first time. And it's theme is you know cancer and not a bunch of teenagers are chasing after manic pixie dream girl how about you amanda so turtles all the way down for me while we're here to talk about it and like that means going over a lot of the plot points and things like that it really isn't about the plot so you describe it as being like where she's chasing after to try and hunt down this billionaire Uh, but i think that the strength of this book comes from the way that the writing style sort of like swallows you up. 
I think that it's really evocative of this feeling of being trapped in Aza's head in this, as she describes it, the ever-tightening spiral. Um, that, that sensation, I feel like, is really well captured in the writing. And one of the places where I, I thought it was very interesting and it was sort of like meta writing about writing almost is when her therapist is talking about how you can't really describe pain. You can only say things that pain is like. You can only describe it through metaphor. And I think that this book does that really well with describing like the trauma of Aza's mental illness, what she has to deal with in these these metaphors. So being this ever-tightening spiral in particular, I think was really effective. So I think that it's just a really good book to be trapped in the middle of, in a way, and to get some inkling of how Aza feels with this as her reality. Um, what about you, Danielle? What did you think? Well, I liked this book a lot. I would say that this is way more my speed than The Fault in Our Stars. I definitely don't want to be mobbed by fangirls, but I didn't love that one. I loved the humor in An Abundance of Catherine's, but really the philosophy in Looking for Alaska. And this one was just way more my speed. I could identify with a lot of the anxiety that the protagonist had, and I liked that it wasn't all a sappy love story. Are you anti-love, Danielle? (laughs) I am not anti-love. But I thought it was interesting, and and Erin even said this, that people say to John Green that teenagers don't talk that way or think that way or whatever that way. But, like, dude, I was one of those teenagers. You totally were. Erin, were you one of those teenagers? Yes and no. There were definitely times where my friends and I had very philosophical, grand ideas, were speaking articulately. There was also times where... We were just stupid. I kind of feel like there are teens who do talk that way, just like there are adults that do talk that way. And there are some people who don't. And I don't think it's a generational thing. I don't think it's an age thing. I don't think it's a problem with his writing because, like I said, there are people who think this way and talk this way. It's just some people do, some people don't. I I completely agree. And one of the other things that is brought up in this novel is that the billionaire's son, Davis, whom Aza has known for a long time, even though they fell out of touch, keeps an online journal, like a Tumblr. Mm-hmm. I kept an online journal. Amanda? It did. I was not, like, deep or philosophical or any such things, but yes. And I think that one of the cool things that this novel explores is the way in which we can be kind of a heightened version of ourselves online or through text messages without the inhibitions of being in person. I liked that technology was so easily integrated in the story because I think this is something that authors either leave out completely or they try to force it in and it doesn't seem natural. So with this one, like the text messages and the, you know, online Tumblr and all of that stuff, it just seemed very natural. Like it wasn't like they were forcing it to say like, oh, look, these are teenagers. They need to be online. You know, (laughs) it it wasn't that. It was just like, this is what they do. I really liked that. Me too. Yeah. I also really liked the best friend, Daisy. Daisy is awesome. Amanda? I mean, she's fine. (laughs) (laughs) okay so here we go i'm gonna bust it out since amanda's like she's fine amanda is a lot like daisy and i have some textual proof here 
I don't I don't find this to be necessary. I'm just I'm just saying. <laughs> so Daisy works at Chuck E. Cheese, which Amanda has never worked at Chuck E. Cheese, but um Daisy sends dramatic text messages to Aza. Here we go. These are text messages. I just drew the short straw, so I have to get inside the freaking Chucky costume. See you later, if I survive. If I die, weep at my grave every day until a seedling appears in the dirt, then cry on it to make it grow until it becomes a beautiful tree whose roots surround my body. They're making me go. They're taking away my phone. Remember me, Holmesy. Update. I survived. Getting a ride to Applebee's after work. See you. This- that doesn't sound like me at all. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, I really did like Daisy as a friend. She pushes Aza outside of herself. She tries to ground Aza. She tries to support Aza. I don't know if it's always effective in the book, but she she definitely tries in her best 16-year-old way. I liked her. I really liked her too, but more importantly, I liked that it explored what mental illness can do to those around you. So you said that she supported her, but we also get the sense of that it's hard for her as well. Yeah. Um, And I think that's very important to talk about that. It's not just the person who suffers from it, but it's those around them as well. We all have our things. We all have different issues that affect us and those around us. So I liked looking and and reading into how this affected both girls differently. And Danny, you wanted to talk about the importance of fan fiction in this book and also to you and Aaron. (laughs) In this book, Daisy writes fan fiction and she's quite popular on her fanfic website or forums or I don't remember what she's using. I, I think forums are probably gone in the universe, but she does write Star Wars fanfic And it made me laugh as I was thinking about it today because, Aaron, we totally met because of Harry Potter fanfic. We totally did. (laughs) (laughs) Aaron and I both wrote Harry Potter fanfic back in the day when we met like 10, 12 years ago. Freshman, sophomore year of college. It was a while ago. Yeah. And so do you think, Aaron, that when John Green mentions fanfic, do you think he's pandering to women like us I don't know if I would call it pandering necessarily I think he just recognizes that fandom plays a huge role in teenagers lives these days and I think that's why he included it it's just another aspect of Daisy's personality I I think that it's interesting that fan fiction is present because fan fiction is is definitely like of a fantasy space and far from reality. And Aza's thoughts are also far from reality, but they are also gripping her. Like, mm-hmm. they are her reality, and they are simultaneously not real. And so I think it's an interesting juxtaposition between the, the fanfic space and the mental space that Aza lives in. And with that, friends, we'll take our first break. When we come back, we'll share about things we like a latte... Then we'll return to our discussion of turtles all the way down and dig a little deeper. Welcome back, y'all. It's time for our Things We Like a Latte. So, Danielle, what is your brew of choice this week? I just want to give a quick shout out to Simon versus the Homo Sapiens Agenda, which 
I just finished uh, in preparation for our next podcast episode. So I won't talk about it a super lot here, except that it was squishy and wonderful and I love it and I can't wait to see the movie. All right. Strong choice. Uh, what about you, Erin? I would like to talk about a Netflix show that I recently saw. Netflix has so many new shows coming out that half the time I don't even realize there's a good show out until it's been out for a while. So I just finished Everything Sucks, which I loved because it has all of this 90s nostalgia in it. It's about a group of teenagers. They want to make a movie. It has a lot of themes going on. But I, I really watched it for the 90s nostalgia. It, it took place, I think, nice. in 1996. So I could be like, yes, I remember when the internet was that slow. <laughs> um, so I really enjoyed it. It was great. Cool. Awesome. And what about you, Amanda? Um, so for me this week, I am picking a movie. It's called The Big Sick. And it's written by Camille Nanjiani and Emily Gordon. And it's a loosely based story of their romance and coming together through these cultural misunderstandings in addition to this illness that uh, Emily falls into uh, and dealing with her family and all the things surrounding that. And it was just a great movie. It's got elements of drama and rom-com in there. The writing is spot on and it'll just, I think it'll really make you smile, especially in the beginning as they're falling for each other. It's a very natural, enjoyable courtship to watch. And I Really recommend it. It was such a great movie. The Big Sick, written by Kumail Nanjiani and Emily Gordon. When we return, we'll go back to our discussion on Turtles All the Way Down. The rest of this show may contain spoilers, so if you're leaving us here, keep in touch on Instagram and Twitter at YA Cafe Podcast. If you're a teacher or a librarian and you want to know more about this book for an education setting, check out ideas at teachnouvelle.com slash YA Cafe Podcast. We'll be back after this quick break. Do you have a product you'd like to get in front of teachers, librarians, and other book lovers? If so, email us at yacafepodcast at gmail.com. Welcome back, y'all. We're continuing our discussion on Turtles All the Way Down by John Green. If you haven't read this book yet, once again, we're warning you that this segment is going to contain spoilers for the last half of the book. All right, so Aaron, what are your spoiler-included thoughts on this? The one big spoiler that I can think of is we find out in the end that Davis's dad has died. That's the big spoiler. But I will also say that I don't understand why they included like this mystery of the missing billionaire. Mm. I think it could have been a great story on its own, just dealing with the relationships between the kids and mm -hmm. and all of this thing. So I don't know. It seemed like kind of it just an excuse to get Aza and Davis like to talk to each other. Oh, I yeah. strongly disagree. So I think the purpose of the missing billionaire was hugely important to this story. So when I read this, I read it as a subversion of tropes, right? So you have this character, Aza, who has obsessive compulsive disorder. And the way that has been portrayed in pop culture is a lot of, oh, 
now she's a brilliant detective who sees things no one else sees. Or, oh, "Oh, now she finds this boy who loves her because of these quirks. And I think the purpose of this book going into it is to say, that's not how this works. Like, Aza says at one point, I don't know how someone could be a detective. I'm the least observant person I know. And I think that that's really important because Aza is so trapped inside the workings of her mind in a lot of ways and trying to figure out what are my thoughts? What is actually me? It's not like she is in a brain space to go and solve this caper about this missing billionaire. So I I think that the purpose of the billionaire being lost and then ultimately being dead is just saying this is not how real life works. These illnesses are debilitating if they're untreated. And Aza is going to have to deal with her illness before she can go and solve crimes or get the boy or whatever it may be. That's really interesting. I hadn't thought about that, which is weird because I watched every episode of Monk and I love House and just a lot of other things where the protagonist has some sort of obsessive compulsive disorder or, you know, social difference that somehow makes them a star detective. And I I wasn't even thinking about that, but that that makes a lot of sense. And this thing that is quasi glorified in pop culture is really shown here in the nitty gritty, you know, at one point she does end up hospitalized, not for anything that she, you know, she, she got into a car accident and she ends up hospitalized, but she has her same microbial fear that leads to her drinking hand sanitizer. That was really just the whole time she was doing that. I was like, what are you doing? Why are you doing that? Yeah. And even she was like that. She was having those thoughts. This is insane. Like, don't do this. Um, But still, I thought that scene was really gut-wrenching because it was shown like she knew this was a bad idea rationally, but she still couldn't stop. I really liked when I was reading that scene. It's basically one big paragraph with random all-cap sentences and stuff. So the fact that it's all one big paragraph that takes up literally a whole page kind of like shows you how stuck in her head she is right now. Yeah. Um, I loved that. So John Green, definitely, he, um, I mean, I guess we're in the spoiler section now. So anybody who's listening this far probably has read it. But he does give physical differentiation to what Aza calls her invasives, which are the thoughts that she feels that she can't control. So they are italicized. Sometimes they're in caps. And it makes it really obvious that she's fighting against this thought pattern. Uh, One more thing with the the hospital scene. I thought that scene was really important because not only did it have that huge paragraph where we're stuck in her head and she has to do this, I think that that draws a really clear line between just a quirk and like a deeply debilitating situation. Like you see it earlier, you see that she like has to Google C. diff all the time and she has this this wound on her finger that she's constantly agitating to try and get the infection out or whatever it is that she thinks, uh, checking for her own reality. All these things that she checks on her hand or this cut on her finger, all of those things can be read as like, oh, this is quirky because we're in a media time where... A lot of characters have a lot of quirks that aren't necessarily debilitating. And it goes back to what Aaron was saying about John Green in his earlier novels having this manic pixie dream girl character. So Aza is not that. Right. And I think that this scene in the hospital is really important to show that not only is this difficult for her life, it's also life-threatening. Because, you know, drinking hand sanitizer can kill you. And 
even though she knows that, she still can't stop herself. And this also stands in the way of her relationship with Davis. She says at one point to him, I'm not going to unhave this is what I mean. I've had it since I can remember and it's not getting better and I can't have a normal life if I can't kiss someone without freaking out. So just this concept of not being able to unhave this thing. This is not a thing that's going to get fixed or needs to be fixed. It just needs to not stand in the way of her life. I think one of the quotes that I really loved was when she said, I was getting better, but not necessarily well. That really stood out to me. Yeah, that progress doesn't necessarily mean everything's better. Right. One of the things I really loved about this book in terms of progress and better versus well is that this book does not end with Aza and Davis together. And I love that. I love that Davis had this this purpose for her, but the story doesn't have to end in a together relationship to have a meaningful conclusion. Yeah, I think that's true. And I think uh, I liked that it was written that it wasn't just because of Aza's illness that they didn't get together. Like that played a role in it for sure. But also Davis has just had this traumatic experience of his father going missing, finding out his father has died. So at that point, he wasn't capable of being a good boyfriend probably to anybody, much less Aza, who has all these different things going on in her life. Mm-hmm. He was also a big brother. Yeah. He mm-hmm. he recognized that that's what he had to do right now was to take care of his younger brother. So Yeah, so he definitely saw his priorities. That's true. I really also liked at the end when it comes out that Aza has never read one of Daisy's fanfics. And she has this confrontation with Daisy in which Daisy says, you've never read one of my fics. You don't even know my parents' names. And at the beginning of this encounter, Aza sort of wants to make excuses. She wants to put that back on these intrusive thoughts that she has and how that's very all-consuming. But it becomes clear that she could know Daisy's parents' names and manage her intrusive thoughts at the same time. She is not a great friend, and that's different from her mental illness that she's dealing with. Yeah, I think that ties in again with what we said earlier about how the mental illness affects not just the person, but everybody around the person as well. That moment of realizing that she wasn't being a good friend, and that was something that she needed to work on and get better at. I really like that scene. Yeah. Our three most prominent characters in this novel were Davis, Daisy, and Aza. And all three of them live their lives on very different economic levels. And that definitely comes into play a lot with the relationship between Daisy and Aza more than Davis. Even though Davis is like the very wealthy one, Daisy calls Aza out on saying, hey, you can't judge me for buying a laptop. Like you already had a laptop and all these kinds of things. Uh, What what were y'all's thoughts on that? I really liked it because it's so true. Particularly when you're in high school, you do have friends who are on different economic levels than you are. So I really like that. One of the most powerful scenes to me was actually when they get the money from Davis and Daisy's first response was like this sigh of relief saying, I can go to college. That was very powerful to me because there are so many people nowadays who are just like, how can I even afford college? How can I even do that? So that really stood out to me. And I think it was good to describe that there were different levels of being rich and being poor. Yeah. One detail that I thought was really interesting in this 
difference between Aza and Daisy was that at the very beginning of the novel, Aza notes that Daisy writes all of her fan fiction on the phone and she's so fast at typing on her phone. But in the end of the novel, Daisy kind of flips that and says, well, yeah, like I have to be because I didn't have a laptop and I had to find a way to express my passions anyway. And it meant typing fan fiction on the phone. Yeah, I think yeah. that was a really good thing to inform about her character too because Daisy's a person who I want to write fan fiction. I don't have a computer. I'm going to do it on my tiny little phone keyboard because that's what I'm going to do. She's definitely a go-getter. Definitely. One thing about the money though that didn't sit well with me is the fact that Davis literally just hands over like $100,000 and in real life that sort of gift because I have an accountant brother-in-law that sort of gift would be taxed. You well, that's can't... why they went to the uh, that's why they went to the lawyer right because it's dirty money they, they and you did just gotta... go to the lawyer but like i feel like that is creating hope in people that you're like yes i will befriend a rich person they will just hand me all the money and it'll be great and it's like no no there's so many legal strings with that sort of thing yeah that's why you just gotta get dirty money Aaron. like <laughs> obviously <laughs> clearly you're friends with the wrong rich people <laughs> That's our show for today, friends. Erin, thank you so much for joining us. Yes, yes. We hope to have you you back very soon. Remember, you can find us on Instagram and Twitter at YA Cafe Podcast. We're always looking for new book recommendations and guests, so definitely reach out. And if you're a teacher, you can find even more book reviews for educators at teachnouvelle.com. Happy reading!